All right, guys, we're going to continue Lyle's study in Revelation with a letter to the church of Pergamum. And it's a chapter 2. It's going to start in verse 12 through 17. And uh, talk a few minutes about uh, what he commends this church for and what he challenges this church about and how that applies to us in society today. Uh, kind of just to get us in the, in the mode of what we're thinking about here, Pergamum was probably the crown jewel city of Asia Minor at the time. It was, it's about 100 miles uh, north of Ephesus. Smyrna's right in between it and Ephesus, and it was a capital city. It had been a capital city for about 250 years. Uh, the Greek name Pergamon actually means citadel. It, it was a huge city, had a lot of false temples, false gods, false worship there. And so uh, it was, a, it was a, a major city. It was built on a hill about 1,000 feet high above a plain. And they said when you came in to see it, it actually looked like a royal city because of where it sits and, uh, and uh, just had this presence about it. They had a library that was over 200,000 handwritten volumes. Uh, they actually invented the, the, the use of, of parchment in the fact of using it so much. I mean, the, the library at Alexander was the only library that was bigger than what they had there in Pergamon in that day and time. There was about 150 to 200,000 people lived in that city. It was a center of worship for four main deities. Athena and Zeus was two of them. The other two were really odd names to pronounce, but one of them, A-K-L-E-P-I-O-S, was the god of healing. And people actually came from all over the world to the temple to be healed in that city. It's a A-K-L... E-P-I-O-S. I'm not sure how to pronounce that correctly. That's what it sounds like. Okay. And, uh, and so, and, and that city was laid out in funny ways. The poorer people lived on the edges, and then as it graduated up to the hill where the, the, all the temples and things were, was your better class of people. So it was, a, it was a city that had a lot of establishment, a lot of things going on at the time. It was also the first city that was granted the right to worship a living emperor. So they were into emperor worship. It's the first city they built a temple to somebody alive. So they were actually worshiping a live human being as a god. I'll tell you a little bit what was going on there. And so that's what the church in Pergamum was facing, and that's what they were dealing with. That's what they were living in the midst of when we look at that. Let's, let's look at the passage of Scripture, and I just kind of want to start digging into some things about this passage and about uh, uh, what we're going to take away from it. Chapter 12, verse 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. 
So if we back up and start looking at this passage right from the start, there's not a lot of question about who's writing this. Now, if you've got a Bible and it's in red, it's pretty, pretty easy. But when he talks about the double-edged sword, we know he's referring, if you look back at 1.16 in Revelation in chapter 1, it said, In his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. We know we're talking about Jesus. There's no doubt about it. You go back to Hebrews, uh, same passage in Hebrews talks about the same thing when you look at that. And, uh, and so we know what's going on there when we're, when we're looking at that. Now this church is identified, when we start looking at this church, it's identified as a worldly church and a church of compromise. Now understand, this is not everybody in that church, but that's how he identifies it. That's how the commentators identify it. That's what's happening there. They're being affected. Uh, we don't know who started that church, probably Paul on his missionary journeys, but there's no record of it. It's, it's just there. And uh, it was, like I say again, it was, it was a center for cultural pagan worship and idol worship uh, for, for that entire Asia Minor region. And, uh, and we're going to deal a little bit with that worldliness and, uh, and, and compromising in just a minute. But, but it's still a problem in the church today. And that's one, that's, I think, the reason God points this out because the church is put here to be salt and light to the world and change the world. But the reverse is what's happening in a lot of cases. The world is actually setting the standard for the church. And we're seeing that even in our day and time probably more and more. So we'll talk about that a little more in just a minute as we get into it. We're going to look at five things when we look through here. Of course, we know, we know who the writer was or the correspondent. That's Jesus was talking. We're going to look at the commendation. The attributes, in other words, what God commends them for, what he says is good. We're going to look at the concern he has, which is the sin, what's wrong with the church. We're going to look at the command, what he tells them to do, what, what the message is to those people from Jesus. And we're going to look at the counsel, which is the encouragement that he gives them. What's his final words and what's he promising us when we look at it. And, and again, the double-edged sword out of his mouth, we know that's Jesus. So we know what's going on there. Now, there's something interesting about that statement, though. To start that passage with that, he could have just said, this is the living Lord, or this is the one who started it. But he says, this is the one who has a sharp double-edged sword in his mouth. What do you see in that statement? Other than just saying that. Why, why would he start that out that way? This is, this is a, almost a threatening statement, if you look at it. This is a statement that says, the one talking to you is the one that has ultimate power to judge and will judge and and, and commentator said he's identifying himself as hey this is about wrong and right this is about my coming judgment if something doesn't happen so he identifies himself that way so that they'll understand that there's there's some metal to what he's fixing to say to them it's not just general conversation this is something they need to heed and pay attention to when we look at that and, and of course the message in it and as it always is, is repent or be judged. And we're going to see that a little bit more in just a minute. So, and in the commendation part, it's in verse 13. Okay, what's good about the church? That's the first one we want to look at and talk about in just a minute. He said, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lived. Real critical thing. He says, I know where you live. In other words, Christ is saying, I know how it is where you are. I'm just not saying, I know what you live in. I know what you're suffering through. I know what you're dealing with. And so he makes a point there. The commentator went in and he said he actually is making a, 
a valid point there that to understand. I know how hard it is where you live. Where Satan's throne is, and he says something else about the, Satan's home, that doesn't mean that Satan had a throne there in the sense of that's where he lived, but it was such, there was so much paganism and so much evil there that it was like if he had a place, that's where it would be. It was such a center culture for all that stuff that, that God is saying, it's just like he's got his throne there. I understand that, and I know. And he said, but you did not renounce your faith. So he's saying, in the midst of all this, you're holding true. And this guy Antipas here, he talks about my faithful witness. He was put to death. History reports that he was roasted alive in the belly of a brass calf. And, and you can imagine what kind of death that was. And yet, these people haven't renounced the church. So there's, there's some tough people here. There's a, there is a, a, a Christian culture here that, that's built out of some, some good stuff. And he's commending him for that. And he said, even in the midst of this, you guys, you guys are hanging on. You're doing a good job. And so you're constantly dealing with these issues of, of, of all of this paganism around them. And, and, and they're being persecuted. I mean, they're the threat of death because, you know, they've already killed this guy. And who knows how many more. <laughs> they were in a battle, but they were staying the course. And that's what Jesus is proud of for them. And that's what he's commending them for. But then in 14 and 15... He gets to his concern. Is in all these letters, there's, there's compliments and there's concerns. There's what you're doing good, but oh, by the way, we need to work on this. And so it is with all of our lives, probably every day, you know. All right, in 1415, he says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites by sin, by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. All right, let's just stop there and deal with them through. We know the story of Balaam back in Numbers. I mean, you know, he, he's, he's, a, he's a prophet for hire, Balaam and Balak, and, and they get into this deal with Israel. And just in chapter 25, verse 1, let me just read you a couple of verses out of it, just kind of refresh our memory. And it said, While Israel was staying in the Arcavia Grove, the men began to indulge in sexual morality with the Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices and to the gods. The people ate and bowed down to these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal. So what happened, it's kind of a thing. He got the Israelite, the Moabite women to entice the men to come in and said, Oh, by the way, it's okay. You can go ahead and eat with us. You can worship our gods. And so they started this process here uh, of this sin going on in, in the camp of Israel. And when you read down through there, it talks about the plague that was on them, and they killed part of them, and he told Moses to kill them. But actually, 24,000 Israelites died before this thing ended very quickly. That's how serious God is about things like this. And so he's referring back to this because what's happening here in Revelation is the same thing. He's got people among the Israelites, and one of these, one of these Israelites in Numbers actually brought the Moabite woman into the camp with him. So we've got people in the church in Pergamum who are living, quote, the Christian life, but yet they're living the worldly life outside with it. And, and they have told themselves, or they've come to rational believing, that it's okay to do that. And that's why we're looking at it as kind of a compromising church or a worldly church. So that's one of the things he's dealing with there is he's trying to get them to understand what was going on. False teaching, compromising worldliness is one of the things he's talking about. All right, what's the link here now? And then he talks about, uh, he goes down and he talks about the Nicolotians as well. Now, 
we don't know exactly what that referring to in who they are, but we know that they were also a group that led people into idol worship and sexual immorality. So those are the things God's addressing in this church in Pergamon. He said, you've got people in the church, not everybody, a lot of the church has been faithful, but you've got people in the church who are participating in these false practices, who are participating in this evil, in this sin, who are, who are saying it's okay, who are advocating false teaching. That's the thing he had against them. That's the problem here. And that's what God's trying to deal with in this. Now, the, what's happened in, 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 the, in the church is that not everybody is guilty of this, but guess who is responsible for it? Everybody. That's something we need to really look at and think about. Even though everybody in the church wasn't involved in this, this message is to the whole church of Pergamon. And, and we'll dig into that just a bit more in a minute. And, and, and again, one of the things in these people participating in these pagan orgies and all this idol worship, they were probably playing on Paul's Christian liberty out of Romans 14 where he says, all things are good, but some things I shouldn't do, you know, if it makes my brother stumble. So probably they were playing on that and saying, well, you know, it's okay. We're living the Christian life, and it's okay to do these. Nothing is bad, so all these things. And so, again, it's false teaching, but they're rationalizing it. And what has happened is the church has allowed them to stay in the church for whatever reason, compromise and, and, and whatever, you know, comes into this. Now, I guess the question we might ask here, worldliness and compromise, is that a problem today? I think it is too. It, it's very much so. How do, what are some facets that worldliness plays on the church? What, how are we worldly? Not just our church, but any church. Materialism, all numbers of things, you know, we dig into and look for. Uh, compromise. Hey, compromise is, is getting more and more every day. Uh, you know, don't don't be so harsh. Tolerance, relevant. You know, rep, be relevant. You know, just let things go. Have, have a quiet, have a quiet spirit about things. And uh, here's a quote from one commentator in one in one of the books I found. He said, "When I taught a Reve- taught a, taught Revelation in a college age class a few years ago, the churches of Pergamum." And Thyatira next week, which their problem is Jezebel in the midst of them teaching false teaching. He said, these two churches generated the most discussion than the rest of Revelation combined in a college-age class. And he said, the reason was the students identified with the pressures to compromise in areas of sexual morality, chemical dependency, silent accommodation, and the reigning secularism of the campus. They said it's almost impossible to live in today's society and not compromise and not give in some areas. Get along to get along. And it's almost an essential, is what they said. And so that's the message here. That's what we're dealing with, is, is how do we work through that. And, uh, but ultimately, who determines the standards? This. I mean, we like to do our own, but, and this hasn't changed. Society's changed. The world's changed. Things changed. This hasn't. And that's the challenge, and that's the challenge that that this passage brings to us here tonight. Um, and you know, does the church have a tendency to compromise? Sure, we do. Sometimes unintentionally, we we, we want to be loved. We want to be like we want people to feel welcome. We want to encourage people to come. We always do. But it can't be at the compromise of the principles and the essentials of what we do. 
And uh, but but we we kind of get into that more and more. And a real good example of that is the sermon Lyle preached a few weeks ago on Rob Bell, Love Wins. That's compromise. That is saying that's not coming out and saying there is not a hell, but that's coming out and saying in the end love wins. That's that is serving a group of people who don't like to hear that you're accountable to God, that there is a there is a punishment, that there is a hell, that you could be there for eternity if you don't do these things. And so what's Rob Bell does? He just kind of comes around the back end and talks about the good part of it. That's compromise. That's not that's not giving you know the entire word of God. And so yes, the church does that. And why do we do that? Numbers. We want people to come in. And sure we do. Listen, we want people to come in. But people need love. People need fellowship. But only Jesus can save their souls, right? We fill this building up. But a lot of them never hear about Jesus and they spend eternity in hell. Do we take some of the blame for that? I think so. That's, that's kind of my just take on it. But when you look at this, I mean, who else can you blame? And you look what God tells them here. I mean, he, he's not playing about this. He's really serious. So there is an expectation and an obligation for born-again believers to keep the faith pure, to keep the truth pure. And that doesn't mean be legalistic. That's not saying you have to have a brown shirt and a white tie to sit on this side. That's, you know, I, <laughs> but it's saying we love you. The door is open to anybody. But there are standards. And there are, this, is, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. I don't care what your condition is. Jesus will help you, and we will help you if you want help. But if you're not willing to do that, or if you want to advocate something different, I mean, look at the issue of the Episcopal Church for years where they split over the homosexual clergy. One group said, we've got to go. We cannot stand in unison with God and support this because it's unbiblical. Well, that's one side willing to compromise, one side saying we won't. But that's the decisions we have to make sometimes, and I think we see it here. But we have a tendency to do that. You know, we want everybody to like us. We do. One, one commentator put it like this. He said, in short... When we value what the world does instead of valuing the kingdom, we forfeit the role as witnesses as Christ's kingdom in this world. Too much of Western Christianity has become indistinguishable from our culture. Too much of our evangelistic effort is geared towards persuading the world that we are acceptable because we're just like them. And that is so true. If we affirm what the world affirms, or more often, if we live as the world does, to what then do we invite them in conversion that differs from what they already experience and have? Absolutely nothing. If we live just like the world, and if we go out and ask the world, what do you want in church? And then we do church that way. What do we have to offer them? Nothing. It's like, come as you are, never change, it's okay. No, it's not. And that's what we're seeing here. But, but I think the commentator nailed it. First uh, John 2.15 Great passage. Y'all know what it is. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anything, anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has or has not done from the Father, pride, those three things, anything in life, they all come under those three things right there. Our, big, our problems in this world come in those three things right there. Lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. He's saying you can fall in love with this old world, but it's not going to last. And, uh, and again, that's, that's what, we, what we deal with every day. God says if we don't repent, he will personally, personally 
What he said, he said, I will come. He said, I'll personally make war with you. That's a battle I don't want to fight. I mean, you think about that when you read this passage. And he said, the one with the double-edged sword said, I will come soon, and I'll make war against you. So we have to think about that very, very hard when we get into it. But that's his issue with the church. You have these people in your midst. You know about them. They're committing evil. They're teaching false teaching. They're leading others astray. You need to deal with this, and you need to deal with this now. That comes under the word of church discipline to some degree. It's a word we don't like, uh, you know, and it's a very touchy word. And there is a fine line between reaching a lost world and compromise. It, it is a hard line because we want to be, you know, effective. We want, we want people, to, when they encounter us, to say, I can hang out with those folks. You know, they love me, they care, they're normal, they're good. But at the same time, we have to always hedge ourselves to make sure we never fall away from those principles that we're standing on. And at times, we're going to be challenged to make tough decisions. We just are. And, uh, and I think that's what we're called to do. Kind of looking down and, and finishing up in a couple of these verses here now. And, and, and uh, he said, and repent they were. And then when he says, likewise, you will also the hold of the teaching of Nicolosians. We talked about that. He said, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And that's the challenge. Repent. Now, repent is what? Turn. Do something different. Quit doing what you're doing. And with God, it's always 180 degrees. There's, an old, you know, there's, there's one or two things that goes on when our, when our Christian struggles. It's my way or God's way. Totally. There is no big fat gray area in the middle that we can bounce back and forth. I'm going to do it God's way. Or he said, you can do it your way, but I don't have anything to do with it. And, and we don't like that, but that's the way he is. He said, I know what I want to do here. And so, and he said, if you don't get this right, repent, which means 180 degree turn. When you, you know, confession and repentance are two different things. Confessing something and say, I did it. Repenting and say, I'm not going to do it anymore, and I'm going to prove that by turning away and not doing it. And so he challenges them to repent here of this. Now, if they're going to turn away from that, then what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to deal with this issue in this church. They're going to have to get serious about what's going on. They're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to have a business meeting <laughs> or something. I don't know what they're going to have, but they're going to have to do something. But then, and, and, and then he follows up with this, all right? And, you know, he's talking about the council. He, he's told them what the problem is. He's told them what they need to do. And we know that. We know repentance is the way out of our issues with God, whatever they are, to seriously come to him and seriously admit our faults and our failures and say, look, God, you know, you know, and, and prove that we're wanting to change and willing to change and work at that. And then he said, verse 17, he says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and so, again, we're coming back. This is the council when he's talking about what's the encouragement? What is he saying? What, what, what is he asking the church to do? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, that's just some reference into God's ultimate promises. The manna had to do with the manna that they put in the Ark of the Covenant, most commentators think. But it's just promises from God that in the end they'll be taken care of, that they won't be left alone, they won't be forgotten, that he'll be there with them. He said, if you be faithful now, in the end, in the end it's going to be awesome for you. So in this, Jesus gives encouragement and promises to reward those who remain faithful. 
what's the point? We're not in this battle alone. We're never in the battle alone. It may seem like that at times. I've been in battles at times that seem like you're alone, but you're never alone. Another good point, every church today and every believer today is going to face times like this. We're going to face challenges and issues in life that's going to call us to take a stand that's going to hurt a little bit. That's a stand that's going to be noticeable, a stand that's, you know, it, 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 you don't never know what it's going to call. Well, we're, we're called to make those decisions. We're challenged to make those decisions, and we have a responsibility to make those decisions when it deals with whether or not we're going to uphold the things of God or we're going to let ourselves get compromised with the world or assimilated in with the world. Assimilation is a big word nowadays. Now, assimilation is a critically important word when you're trying to bring people into a church and make sure they feel welcome and hook them up and put them in places. But assimilation with the world so we can be more like them is a, is a real problem we've got to watch. God calls and challenges us to stand. But here's the key. We've got a choice. We've got a choice in all this. We can do it our way. Right? I mean, we can. God will let you do it your way. You know, we can determine what's the best practice for our church. We can sit down here and decide what's the best thing for our church. We don't have to ask God. We can do that. We can draw people with less Jesus and more worldliness. We can do that. Right? I mean, we can. Probably get a bigger crowd if it's more worldly anyway. We can do that. We can use our advanced technology to rationalize a more tolerant and liberal approach to faith. I mean, we can, we can find some ways to be more liberal and more tolerant. We can, we can find ways to just kind of blend with everybody, make everybody feel good, make, make everybody feel like they want to be here. We can move, remove a lot of the perceived barriers that keep people away. We, we can knock down a lot of this stuff. If they don't like the crosses, we'll get rid of them. If they don't like baptism on the wall, we can get rid of it. We can do a lot of things if we want to. We can ask the lost world what they want and give it to them, so they'll come. We can literally go out and say, you tell us what you want, and we'll give it to you. And, and we can do that. We can go love wins. God saves everybody. Don't worry about it. We can say all religions are valid. Come on in. Same God. It doesn't make any difference. Just join together. We do, aren't we doing that anyway in some places? We can say just be happy and enjoy God's good gifts. But what's Jesus say about it? Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We can do whatever we want to, but there is an ultimatum, and it's clear. If I want to do it my way, Jesus said, you can do it your way, just like the, you know what was going on here. But rest assured, I will judge. And, you know, that's not something that should uh, give us cold chills or scare us. I mean, that's just God. He's saying, if you want to do it my way, we're cold. You just do it. You let me and the Holy Spirit work with But if you do it your way, you go ahead, and he'll give us the freedom to do that. But, but he's going to judge that. There, there's no way out of that. And, and, and you know, we can't, we can't, we can't deny that. that. That's just part of Scripture when, when we start digging into this. And, uh, you know, every believer in every church, we have that choice every day. Every day we get up, we're going to choose, am I going to do this my way or am I going to do this God's way? And, and that's the challenge. And we have to fight that battle. And it is a battle. Listen, it's a battle in this world, and we know that because of the pressures and the things on us. And, uh, you know, and a lot of times it's not clear lines. A lot of times we're not exactly sure. I mean, we're going, I don't really know what to do here, God. And it's not that we're trying to avoid the issue. We, some, I mean, you know, we do get things thrown at us nowadays, and we're not sure where to stand on that. But we have to make that every day. Hey, 
God's way brings blessings. You know, my way brings judgment. I mean, that, that's what he's telling us here. You're, you're going to be judged for this. There's no way around it. And, uh, you know, if you, you remember back over in Joshua, what it said, verse, about chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua said, let me just read. That's a good passage. Let me read that to you right quick because I, I think it's pretty good. In verse 14 in, in chapter 24 of Joshua, he said, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves who you'll serve. Joshua just told him, you know, if you don't want to serve him, don't serve him. Just pick you one out and go for it. And he said, you know, the, 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 serve the day whom your forefathers served, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of Amorites in those land you were living. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We're going to serve the Lord. That's a decision we all make every day. I can't make Glenn's for it, and he can't make mine for me. And, you know, and, and collectively as a church, we have to make that decision when we get up every day. All right. Is our, is our church as a whole, are we going to serve God? Are we going to do it his way? Are we going to do it our way? That's the challenge. That's the battle, you know, that we have to deal with all the time. You know, the question I might ask here and uh, is, did you choose today? Who am I going to choose tomorrow? Who are you going to choose tomorrow? The issue is, God's already made his mind up, right? So we have, we have to make that decision. But God has said, I will bless those that do it my way. And those that don't, eventually, judgment is coming. And, and you know, and, and when we start looking back at these churches today and looking at the issues that are going on, it, it's very easy to see why we're having so much trouble. Now, again, in the society as complex as it is today, we really have to work at it. We really have to, you know, kids today, it's, it's incredible what they go through in trying to deal with these issues and the pressure. And even some of us a lot of times now. You know, I'm pretty cut and dried on stuff, but I've seen enough come and go. It just it doesn't bother me. But but it can be a, it can be a big challenge. So we need to be constantly vigilant about making sure that we're not only making those right choices, but that, that we're letting those choices shine past us, and we're letting people see that that we're living for Christ and that we're holding that 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 banner up. And, and that's what he challenged this church to do. I mean, he, he didn't challenge this whole church, but the scary thing about it was he held them all accountable until they got it fixed. He said, if you don't fix, he said, I'll come and fight against them. And, and so he's asking the church, he's saying, you know, deal with this. You know it's wrong. And uh, probably we're guilty today of a lot of times of just looking past things and saying, you know, I, I know this is not right, but I'm going to look past it. Now, there's a there's a... There's a challenge to do that in a loving way and in a kind way and in a repentive way and in a restorative way. I mean, you know, it never gives us the right to be to be aggressive or mean or any of those type of things to people. But at the same time, I think we've got a challenge. I think God calls us to accept that challenge, to stand up and to be counted. And in a loving, kind way, just saying, I'm not going to do that because it's just not right. It's not God. It's not in here. And so, but the key is, is to make sure everything, we, here's the key. The world has changed tremendously, but this hasn't changed one bit. That's our battle. But it, but it, not our struggle, trying to read this every day and trying to transfer this over into how I live. And that's not easy. Nobody said it was. That's what he told them here. He said, I know where you live. I know what it looks like. 
I know they roasted your buddy inside of a brass calf, and yet you stayed, you're standing strong. I know you're fighting. And, you know, God knows where we're at. He knows exactly what we're dealing with. And if we can keep that in our hearts and minds and keep this in front of what we're doing, to me, I think the message from this church, God is saying, you've done a really good job, but clean this mess up before it hurts you, before it takes you on that. Because if you don't clean it up, just God is a, just as vast as his love is one way, his judgment is the other. He wouldn't be God if he can't be that. He can't be partial. I mean, he loves us beyond belief. But he, here's the thing we have to remember. God hates sin. It's not he don't like it or he said, ah, no. God hates sin. If we could just write that on the refrigerator every day and get it morning. God hates, I don't care what it is, he hates it. It doesn't mean he hates us, but he hates sin. And he will judge it. And we have to keep that in mind when we're walking in this every day, that he loves us. Nothing would please him more to look down and say, hey, man, he's living for me. He's stumbling, and he don't know which way to go right now, but he's trying. To look down and say, well, old Alan got up this morning, and he decided to do his way again, and he's fixing to have a train wreck, but I'm going to sit here and watch him, and maybe one of these days he'll get his mind back on me. That's it. To me, that's exactly how it works. That's how I rationalize it to keep me straight, because... I know when I decide, it's not going to be what it ought to be. But uh, any thoughts, any questions, any comments before we go? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. We do. It don't. It really don't. You know, it's not something where we, we ever have a right to be unkind or unloving or uncaring. But uh, it is what it is. That's the key. And one of the keys for us is, is to really understand what the Bible says and doesn't say. I think we get messed up there sometimes. Really understand because God God does love everybody. I mean, he does. And our biggest enemy, he loves. And, and we have to rationalize that and we have to try to learn to work with that. But you're right. It's, it's not a mandate. Political correctness is not a mandate from God's point of view. Now, sometimes in our issues, in our society where we live, we have to deal with some things. And, uh, you know, but the key there is to not compromise your faith. And, and, and that's starting to be more of an issue in our society here today. We've, we've been fortunate that we hadn't experienced a lot of that over the years, but uh, it's getting a little more and more that we have to do that. But one of the biggest problems is, too, and I really if you think about it, is for a lot of Christian people, the world looks at us and goes, who are you? I mean, you know, because what they, what they look at us and what they see, they see a bunch more people ain't no better off than them that act like them, <laughs> that do everything they do and yet say, I'm a believer. And they're going, well, you know, I got everything you got and I don't waste Sunday morning at church and I don't have to give any of my money and I don't have to go three or four times a week. And you understand what I'm saying, but they look at us and if they don't see something special, if they don't see, something, if they don't see Christ, which will draw them and which will attract them, then we have no right to, to try to sell them anything or give them anything. Because, because the faith, Jesus, they see Jesus through us. And, and I, I think a lot of what we're struggling with is the reason we can't get people's attention or people, people kind of brush off Christians in a lot of places is, is we're not the real deal a lot of times. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, uh, but is it Scripture? That's, that's where you have to take the stand. And it may mean that someday that, that, that really 
hardcore believing Baptists are the only ones left that takes that stand, and you might be looked at as, don't tell them what. But it doesn't matter as long as it's what God says. And that's the key, but you're exactly right. That's some of the pressures, and that's some of what this church was dealing with. I mean, if you think about the influence they had. Now, this, this was a major city, so there was, this was pretty much the world's fair seven days a week there. Anything and everything went. And they're trying to live a Christian life in the middle of this, and there's all these things drawing, all these enticements, all this food offered to idols, all this. Well, what difference did it make if they offered it to a, a rock out here, you know? And they got involved in that stuff. Some of them did, and some of them didn't. And, uh, but God called their hand on it. And, when you look, and next week, when we look at Tower Tower, it's the same thing, because they had allowed Jezebel to come into the church. And he said, what are you doing? You know, and we'll look at that again. But, again, it's just a challenge to us to, uh, to hold fast to the truth. But the challenge before that is, is to understand and know, know the truth. Know, how to live, know what God expects of me before I start telling you what to do. That's, that's one of the things I think we struggle with is to continue to grow. And, and that's why it's so critical every day to get up and say, the first thing I'm going to do today, I'm right with God. Because then, at least if you get one of them choices that it's danged if you do and danged if you don't, you'll at least say, well, it's me and Jesus, it's not just me. And so, you know, I, I'll deal with it. But uh, excellent point. You're exactly right. Trump. Jesus is coming with the best, and you know that. <laughs> It's kind of like an old boy. I heard an old preacher in the country one time. He said, don't ever box with God. His arms are way longer than yours, and he'll, he'll always win. And that's true, if you think about it. And, uh, but listen, we all do it. We, you know, I find myself sometimes thinking, man, I should have stopped and thought about this and prayed about this. And, you know, and it's not that it's serious stuff, but it's just stuff that God's probably going, man, I've been working with this guy for 61 years, and he still gets up some morning and just flies off and don't think about anything. And we all do that, I think. But it's critically important that that we keep that relationship because he'll he'll keep us out of a lot of trouble, and he'll help us. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it may not may not be like these people. We may be in the midst of intense persecution one of these days. Yeah. A lot of it's out of fear or not knowing what to do. And what happens if you're a teacher or you're a principal? You know, you don't know, and your job's on the line. You're going you're going to go to the extreme a little bit to make sure you. And when it has to happen, you have to get it represented outside of the local area so that person's not under the gun. You've got to get it to somebody like ACLJ or somebody there. Because a lot of times, it, it's an overreaction to something, and, and it's not illegal. It, there may be a certain way to do things, and a lot of times, a lot of those gets corrected. But yes, and those challenges are going to come, and they're going to come in job situations. They're going to continue. They're going to come in churches. Listen, it's It's coming. There's going to be people walking in your churches one of these days and, and, and going to challenge what you're teaching, and they're going to sue over it. You can just get ready for it. It's going to happen. But, hey, Christ is still on the throne. He's still got the sharp double edge. It's, it's okay. It's just part of life. Live, you know, we can't get caught up in it and, and let it kill who we are because tomorrow's a new day, and there's, there's a new mission for all of us, and Jesus knows what he's doing. And, and that's how, I think that's how we stay positive about it. Doesn't mean we like it. Doesn't mean we don't do everything we can to help prevent it. Doesn't mean that we won't suffer taking some stands. But we're not doing it without Christ as long as we have a walking relationship with Him, and as long as the church holds together and doesn't fall apart inside and doesn't get into all kind of stuff. 
saying, well, we'll do whatever. You know, if the church gets afraid to take a stand as a whole, then, then it changes again. But, but again, this, just the message coming out of this is, is Jesus said, you know, I'm not going to allow it, but I'm here for you if you'll just work at it and get it cleaned up and, and, and go with it. And, and, and he's talking to each one of these churches as he goes through Revelation and getting them ready to say, you need to get this fixed in preparation for what's to come. And, and that's basically what he's doing here.